Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Today, I'm excited to have chef, writer, social activist, TV host, and all-around renaissance man, my friend, Andrew Zimmern. Thank you for joining me, Andrew Zimmer. You're one of those iconic people now who are out there fighting for our industry, fighting, doing all sorts of things, trying to make this world a better place. I think uh, as a chef, as an entrepreneur, as who you are, it, it's hard not to do this. But I sort of want to, I want to go, I mean, what, what else are we going to do? I mean, we're used to just feeding people. We're always want to take care of people. And obviously it's in your, it's in your blood. It, it's amazing to me though, how, um, how far people who started out their lives just wanting to cook for folks because something magical happened when you made something and it went out into a dining room or went over a counter or got wrapped uh, in paper and handed off to a delivery person and you got feedback, you know, 10 minutes later, 10 days later, whatever, that people liked it, you know, I got into this business because I just loved what it felt like to cook food. Uh, then I realized I could actually like make a paycheck do it. It was almost, the paycheck was almost irrelevant the first, I don't know, 10 years that I was doing this, including like my summer jobs in high school. And now, you know, chefs are being nominated for Nobel Prizes. Chefs are in the White House advocating for policy that affects not only restaurants, but small businesses in general. Uh, it's, I mean, just my goodness, over the course of my lifetime, what has happened with our concept of food almost goes back to the moral imperative of our caveman days where, you know, food was was the central aspect of food and fire, right? You needed to keep the fire going and you needed to keep everyone in the cave fed, speaking metaphorically. And now it's it just it's it, it's mind boggling to me as a as a 
someone who studies this stuff and loves the history and the anthropology and the sociology of it, how, how this has been interpreted by our culture now. So I'm, I'm just lucky I was in the right place at the right time. I, I think that we're, we're, we're all sort of, it's amazing to be living during this, during this moment and seeing what we're doing, seeing what's happening is just, I, I think amazing. I want to kind of go back to the first time. I, I, I know I had met you before many times and it was just briefly, you know, whatever. But there was the moment that I really felt like we connected. And I don't know if you, you, to me, it was one of those moments where I felt like, first of all, I think anybody who's a chef, anybody who's a cook, anybody who's a, a loves people the way we do, this is just how we act. But I saw you at the airport in Aspen. We were landing there for the Aspen Food and Wine Festival. And we're in that tiny airport. And you're taking that bag of yours, which I'm sure you, you, you've, un, you've taken off of a carousel a million times because of the amount of traveling you do. But you looked at me, I looked at you and I said hello and I, I, I knew you and I guess you knew me, but you came over and gave me a hug and a kiss and I was like, you know, it's so good to see you. And, and that human, well, that human contact, I think we're all dying to have again. Running into people is one of those things, but that, that I think we're all missing right now. But I, I was just, it was just, it, it was, uh, you know, it just showed me again that, you know, the people that, that I work with and my colleagues, they're, they're loving people that, that want to be friends and they want to help. And, and just uh, that, that, that sort of hug, it was like, oh my God, we are, we are friends. And it, it, it really moved me, I have to say. Food, food people are the best people in the world. Um, uh, I'm a little bit hurt that you've forgotten that we dated in high school, but that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, I, I mean, I've been saying this for 20 years. Food people are the best people on the whole planet. I think that the, the era of the, of the pandemic of 2020, however, this is going to be remembered historically, um, has, has held up a, a mirror to the ugliest parts of, of our culture and how we, uh, relate to other human beings. But it's also underscored some of the most beautiful pieces of who we are as, as human beings. And I remember watching, uh, you know, the, the towers come down on 9-11 and right behind the fire department and the police department and all the other first responders that went in there were friends and colleagues of ours who set up mobile kitchens you know, dangerously close to where uh, ash was still falling, chemicals were still in the air, but they felt it was necessary to feed people. Yeah. And they didn't care about the danger. They, they ran towards that event. I remember watching in Katrina and seeing, I will never forget in my, in my mind, seeing, uh, uh, John Currents, uh, a picture of him standing in, he had on his big boots and he was standing in water and the grill was propped up on milk crates. And he was just like, he was cooking some meat on the grill that had come out of some restaurant's cooler that, you know, was failing. So you just got to cook the meat. Th that's been, food people show up at, and those are the grand gestures you know, the grand events met with small gestures, but we show up at everything. Food people are, are miraculous doers, rescuers, huggers, 
of of culture and society in general. I mean, you I, and I don't mean to sound too airy, crazy about this. I think it's demonstrably proven that time and time again we show up in an other centered way, in in, in contexts that other industries just have no concept of. We are always there. We are always there. Food people are always there. And it's no different now. You know, I mean, look at who's feeding this country. Look at who's dealing with uh, the massive uh, social and civic issues of our day. It's food people. Food people are leading in places that uh, the federal government is absent. Food people are assisting governors and municipalities in getting stuff done that is necessary for our communities and our neighborhoods and our and our fellows. I'm just I, I with every passing year, it becomes more and more important to me to say out loud, I am so grateful to be a part of this industry. It's the greatest group of people on planet Earth. I've, I've always been very, uh, very thankful that I, I fell into this industry. I mean, I was extremely dyslexic as a kid, so I didn't really know what to do with my life. And I think your example as well, my first couple oh, years. Oh, I was a mess. My, yeah, first I mean, couple I was- year, my first couple years in a kitchen, I was looking around going, they're going to pay me to do this? This is like, I feel like I'm stealing because I screw up so many things. I'm throwing away so many things. That, but I learned and I got it and I love the camaraderie. I loved all of that. But going back to the food people, helping people, one of my favorite stories, and this is the great thing about, you know, Chopped is one of those shows that's been on for over 10 years. And uh, I want to talk about your show next, but the, about your shows next. But um, one of the one of the things is we get to see an incredible character of people, and I can still remember, and it still brings a tear to my eye. This woman, um, this African American woman in New Orleans, comes to Chopped, and it's all people from New Orleans after the hurricane, like a firefighter, or what, and this woman stood there, and just told us her story of being a cook in a high school and cooking. And all of a sudden this thing happened. And she just felt so sorry for all of those people that worked upstairs in the administration and the teachers. Because, you know, after that, she just bought a truck and started cooking and could make a living. But she felt bad for those teachers and everything. They didn't have a job anymore. But she was out there and she's like, talk about them. She was helping, but helping her family and the resourcefulness of this woman. She was just, she was the cafeteria worker, basically. And she's like, I feel so sorry for those poor people that have no jobs, but I can work anywhere. And and that story, and then there was a firefighter who, after everything happened, he was a cook as well, and he retreated and tells a story of going over a certain line and then found, an, found a, a retirement home that had a kitchen. And he's like, well, I, I'm here. I can cook. I also, I'm a firefighter, but I'm also, a, I worked at Brennan's, right? So he just started cooking for people and just out of that kitchen, took over the kitchen. And it was just, I mean, the, the resilience of people is, is, is beautiful. But I think that right now, uh, you know, I think the restaurant industry is, is going to need a little bit of help. Because I don't know if the, the hospitality industry is taking such a hit. I mean, from cruise ships to hotels to uh, airlines to, I mean, people aren't going to be doing as much. I think, you know, I think 50% of these restaurants are probably going to, those jobs are going to go away. What are all of our people going to do uh, yeah. after this happens? I mean, it's going to be tricky. It's, there, there's, a, there's, there's an ironic moment uh at, at work here, a very sad, uh, ironic moment and a, and a great pivot into that, that next topic, I think. 
no industry that I know of is getting kicked in the shorts to the degree that uh, the restaurant and hospitality community is. Absolutely. That being said, uh, while there are lots of coalitions and lots of advocacy work uh, that's going on, and I'm certainly spending, you know, 14 hours a day working on that, you know, currently um, for a bunch of different organizations, most, most importantly, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, we're still out there feeding people. You know, it is, it's, it's incredible to me that restaurants right here in my hometown that do not know if they will be open two weeks from now when their PPP money comes out uh, and comes to an end. People who took it early, took the risk, are using that PPP money in part because they're doing some takeout and some delivery, but they're also using it in part to have those same employees staff community resource kitchens making meals for first responders, making meals for the hungry because we've tripled the need at food banks and food shelves. Oh, it's, yeah. it's mu- that, that, that is the most selfless act in the whole world to know that, you know, you may have a, a date at the, you know, with the, you know, bankruptcy lawyer or the, the, the time may come to turn the sign around in the, in the front door and say closed and right permanently underneath it. Like so many restaurants, by the way, have already announced that. Right. There are people who are using that last gasp to just keep like astronaut thinking. Here's our problem today. We got to, we have hungry people in this neighborhood. We're going to feed them and we'll deal with two weeks in two weeks. Um, but yeah, I, if, if the Restaurant Stabilization Act uh, and Representative uh, Earl Blumenauer from uh, Washington uh, just uh, dropped a white paper on a bill that he's going to introduce called Restaurants. It's, he's got a very uh, clever title to it where all the letters add up to spell the word. It's going to be called the Restaurants Act, just dropped this morning, uh, is going to ensure that we get that $120 billion stabilization fund for restaurants. That's the only way I really see an end game where restaurants are able to reopen, but most importantly, stay open for the 12 to 18 months that's going to be required for the restaurant industry to stabilize, hence the name Stabilization uh, Fund. Um, it, with, without that, uh, I, I predict an extinction event for independent restaurants, um, as much as 80, as little as 60% of which will not make it. Uh, somewhere in there is, is what's going to happen. You're already seeing so many restaurants, well-known restaurants, uh, just say, that's it, we're done. Um, Danny Meyer uh, came out very famously, I think, two, uh, 10 days ago, a week ago, and said he's not going to reopen his restaurants, uh, his independent restaurants in New York, until a vaccine uh, comes out. And the reason is um, extremely uh, profound. It's It's for the safety of his employees, the safety of his guests, and then in a tertiary way, it's then about the reasons that he got into the industry to begin with, which is just an amazing, amazing confessional from one of the great leaders of our industry that it's it's not as fun, the guest experience isn't the same. You know, he freely admits to being able to pivot. He's doing delivery and takeout in some of his restaurants. Um, 
obviously this kind of decision making will change day to day, week to week, month to month. But for right now, until it's safe, he's not even thinking about reopening. I know with some of our restaurants here in the Twin Cities, uh, I have some completely shuttered and am saving all the PPP money for a time later in the summer when it's safer right. for our folks to reopen. And we have some that are open doing carryout and delivery. It's really quite something. It is It is amazing to see that, that, I mean, it's basically like an atom bomb into our industry to shake it up. I'm just hoping that there's good coming out of this in the end. I hope there's, there's first of all, more respect for everybody that works in our industry from, from the farmer that grows the food, from the busboy that clears your table. I think that now we all know that those are really important people. And, and uh, by God, I can't wait to start to, to order a drink and have it dropped off in front of me and a, and, and, a, and, a, and a meal and having it prepared and sitting in a restaurant. Like the concept of that right now is just so, it, it's, it, it's so familiar, but so foreign almost in a way. But all of the work that gets that to that point is very important. And I think that, you know, I think that everybody is, we, we don't, we don't pay enough for our food, I think, in our country right now, as far as consumers go. There's, there's, everybody's sort of been screwed along the way and it's just brought in the price of everything down and everybody's competing. So, I mean, maybe this is going to be a rejigger or a reshuffle and, and things are going to be looking a little better. Uh, for our industry, do I think there's going to be as many people in our industry when this is over? It's going to take a while to get back up to the numbers of people that we employed, I think. Uh, maybe that's why we need to start thinking of other jobs for these for everybody, you know, manufacturing or, 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 or you know, doing other things that are going to keep everybody busy because there's not going to be a there's not going to be enough line cook positions for everybody after this. And I think it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be a very strange sort of reshuffling of the deck. Well, you you bring up. So many good points right there. Let me let me start to move backwards and let me just put a pin in the idea of we can build something better because, you know, I, I want to end up there. Um, even under the best case scenario, we're going to lose 20 to 30, uh, the best case scenario, 20, 30 percent of restaurants disappear. You know, Amanda Cohn uh, wrote a great op-ed in the Wonderful. New York Times about six weeks ago, uh, and she posited the notion radical at the time, and she took a lot of grief for it. I, I, I send her a note of support because I thought she was onto something really brilliant that said, you know, she said, there's 26,000 restaurants in New York. If only 21,000 open, would anyone notice? She, she wasn't saying that to uh, denigrate the restaurants that would close, make fun of anyone. Uh, she wasn't saying it to intimate that a single lost job was tolerable. What she was saying was, have we grown too big over the last 10 years of a booming economy, right? To the point that we may have more seats nationally than there are customers. Is Have we built something too big? Do we have too many chefs on television? Have we idolized? I mean, I just keep extending this idea out. Have we built our industry up? Is there a bubble, in essence, in our industry that's going to burst? And her underlying thesis of, of that to support it was that what we were building, to your point about price and fair trade was not sustainable. It, uh, I would have preferred. It, it wasn't sustainable pref before this happened. No, People it was, were suffering. It was brittle, I, yeah. fragile, and not sustainable. My point exactly before this ever happened, it has been for years and years and years. And I would have preferred, as so many of us have advocated for, that we were able to take our house apart brick by brick and build it together. Instead, it got wiped out overnight by, you know, this horrific uh, tornado. So now we, we have to build it back. 
if we're going to build it back and make the same mistakes that we've made over the last, whatever, 100 years, you know, that's the de- – and expect a different result is the definition of insanity, right? So we do have to make all the systems in it more equitable from how we pay people, how we employ people, who gets employed, how people benefit. And quite honestly, you hit on a, a topic that is so important to me. Even pre-COVID, I made this the center point of one of my conversations at Copia, a talk series that I did out at the CIA's campus in Napa Valley, which was, what is the price of food cost on a plate, right? And is that where a lot of our problems start? And I, I, I happen to think for a lot of reasons, it does. If you set aside the real estate question, right, which is a, a massive one, but we sort of in a way don't control that, right? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the market has been overinflated and locations cost a lot of money. And should we be opening different places? Sure. But you how can you tell someone not to open, you know, a restaurant off of Times Square when there's a million people walking by every day, right? No matter whatever the landlord charges, a savvy entrepreneur will figure out how to make a dollar. However, the problem is, is that we've had artificially deflated food prices in America, both in supermarkets and in restaurants for decades, for decades and decades. It goes back to the horrific ways in which food is subsidized in America. Food, by the way, oftentimes that is not for human consumption. In fact, the majority of the subsidized uh, farm uh, industry in America is only done through crop insurance, which is for food that's not of it, not for human consumption, right? It's part of our farm to freighter uh, system, cotton, soybeans, feed corn, etc. Um, we, we, Tracy Desjardins uh, was, it's just a fantastic story. And, you know, I'm sure we have ones from our own restaurants, but she put it so cogently and such a brilliant chef and leader. For 25 years, she had Jardiniere in San Francisco, right? One of the best restaurants in America. And she closed it last year and pre-COVID-19 and kept some of her other more casual concepts alive. And when I asked her about that, she said, it's really simple. She said, you know, three, four years ago, I was making, we're still making money, single digit percentage to the bottom line, but I wanted to take better care of my people. I wanted to offer insurance and all the other things that other industries get. And she wanted to create that sustainable environment that you were talking about, Mark. And, uh, you know, she put the little note at the bottom of her menu. We've added 3% to your check in order that we can offer benefits to our consumers. Um, and there was a little mini revolt or whatever amongst the consumers, which I, for the life of me, I can't understand. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're a jardinier or, or ready, I mean, you know, yeah. what, what's a couple more dollars going to be? Um, and uh, then she decided, okay, they don't like that. Um, and so she was testing and measuring. She was one of the early adopters of this. And so then she decided she would just change her prices, right? And that created an even bigger stir. And she started to investigate into this. And she realized that when she had opened 25 years ago, and, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but the, the, the gist of it is correct. And the spread, I believe, is correct. When the restaurant opened, it was charging like $17.95 for the chicken entree. Right. And, you know, 25 years later, she was charging like $20.95 for the chicken entree. So the price had gone up 
20% on the chicken entree, but all of every other cost in the restaurant had gone up hundreds of percentage points from rent to insurance to cost of goods to payroll and all of that. So we, we are artificially deflating food menu prices, as you indicate, so that we can keep attracting customers. Um, that's not a recipe for success to run and operate a business. And I do think part of our reset is going to be healthier food because it's in a way easier for a lot of operators to take cheap protein or empty calories and use them to fill people up. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of what gave rise to this, you know, fast food industry, a lot of really bad habits in our industry. And if we start to shrink that and shrink poor, this is going to take education, it's going to take social change, it's going to take so many movers. Right. I, I really think it's going to be a social justice movement like the ones for seatbelts or uh, warnings on cigarette packs and other stuff. We're looking at a you know 10 to 15 year social justice movement at the end of which I believe we will be eating healthier, things will be adjusted, prices will be normal, and it's going to start or is starting right now. So I, I, I think you're spot on. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. You 
I hear about subsidies to the to the farmers, it's like, okay, that's not the farmers that need the subsidy. The subsidy, the farmers that need it are the ones that, you know, let's say that D'Artagnan's buying from her her farmers. You know, those are the farmers you need to get. You need to get the, the, the guy that's growing the organic carrots. You need the guy that's growing the good stuff. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me. It's very funny because I was on the, I was doing an interview for Forbes the other day with uh, Ariane from D'Artagnan. And we were talking about this issue and about, cost of goods and things like that. And she, and as, as you know, Ariane with her big heart and, and, and the love she has for farmers and for restaurateurs and for chefs, she goes, I don't understand for $1. What, what kind of meat could be in that hamburger? What kind of meat are you eating for a dollar? It's like, this can't be good for you. It's absolutely bizarre. It's, it's, it's amazing too, because the, the, the cyclical nature of our food industry, you know, the, the economic boom of the last 10 years and the rise of the restaurant and the celebrity chef of the last 30 years is what gave birth to what we thought was the last great hope for decentralizing our farm system. In other words, uh, restaurants like yours, mine, a lot of other restaurants all around the country uh, opened up and it created a market for, you know, farmers, new farmers, which we desperately need, by the way. You know, 500,000 farmers are going to age out of the system over the next, you know, 20 years. We need to replace them. Uh, and it gave rise to all of these small farms uh, that sold exclusively uh, into restaurants and hotels and other food service establishments that uh, wanted to offer food that tasted better, uh, that was looked <laughs> more delicious, was better for you, um, and we wanted to support these micro-economies. Um, now, one of the things that we're seeing uh, when you look at the supply chain, and you know, thank God these issues are on the front pages of our newspapers, websites, and in the A block of every news uh, uh, media entity and newscast every night uh, for the last five weeks, is the problems with that food chain. You see that it's big meat, big ag that is uh, not offering solutions. In fact, their systems are enabling even more problems. Right. And if this isn't enough from a public health standpoint to underscore why we needed for decades to decentralize our food system, I, I don't know what is, you know, over the course of my lifetime, we went, you know, from having X number of uh, meat uh, USDA uh, licensed uh, meat processors to X minus like 5000 meat processors. And we put 75 percent of the beef industry in America into the hands of three companies, 65% of the pork into the hands of, I think, two companies. I mean, it's just, it's, the, crazy. The, it's absolutely absurd. So, of course, it's more dangerous for the employees. It raises immigration uh, abuses. It allows for that, 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 you know, that world uh, that, you know, we, we read about a uh, hundred years ago in Sinclair's book uh, to come back roaring at us. It's carried disease. You know, people people don't realize that you know you know a lot of the bacterium that we worry about in the food business we put in there when we sped up our supply system. We've created unsafe food and an unsafe labor practice. And we need to get back to where farmers are growing food for human beings and let a smaller sector, although important, 
grow food for uh, non-human consumption. And there's finally some traction for that. People are finally getting it because the media is reporting on it for the first time. I've been advocating for 20 years for uh, those running for office to talk about literal kitchen table issues uh, and put out platforms on food. And this is finally yesterday was the first time I although there was some mention at the last Democratic debate, uh, the presumptive Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, did a virtual town hall on Yahoo News with uh, Jose Andres. And I tweeted out as I was watching it, this for people who've been fighting this fight for 20 years, we finally have a candidate talking nothing but food issues for an hour. And they're so vital because we live in them every day, much in the way that we did during caveman days. This is something every American needs to be involved in. We need, we need to have a food secretary, uh, with the cabinet level position. I think, uh, yesterday Jose activated, uh, for it to be an undersecretary position over at the, uh, um, uh, NSA at Department of State simply simply because food security issues are 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 a global threat uh, to American hegemony and the safety and security of all Americans. Um, we have so many issues that revolve around food, and and maybe this time, maybe this pandemic allows us to actually be dealing with them in a real time basis and not kicking the can down the field. I mean, we kicked the can down the field on immigration for 40 years. Um, this pandemic has showed us what a mistake that is. Uh, we don't have bench players, right? I mean, all those farmers out in the field harvesting, picking crab in Maryland, cutting meat in Arkansas, you know, chickens in Illinois, turkeys in Minnesota, um, dairy in Wisconsin. I mean, the, the the immigrants touch food every single step of the way in our system, and we have created an abusive visa program that still doesn't put enough workers into play, and we have created toxic environments for them. If we had corrected our immigration system 30 years ago, it would be a non-issue. We wouldn't be in this position that we are in now. So we have to use this moment in time to activate people. You know, this, this feels like 1968 and 69 all over again. You know, two of the most horrific years, uh, in American history. Um, and I think we're at that time again. This may be the most central time in our country's history towards how we define and look at ourselves since the Civil War. I personally believe that it is. And uh, it's a hinge event that I think is even bigger, perhaps, than World War II or World War I. I think we have to go, as far as our country is concerned, globally, uh, different story. But we have to go back to the Civil War to see a hinge event of this type. Well, I think that the, 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 the comforting thing that obviously we would love to see the outside, the, get to the other side of this and it be really, you know, things being fixed. But the, the rise of sort of the celebrity chef, we've got Jose Andreas out there beating the path. You're out there talking about these things very intelligently, where I think that now people are finally realizing that, you know, there, there are these chefs and people in the food industry have something to say, and it's very important, especially right now. And it's really getting to be very poignant. You know, I, I have, I always tell this story to friends of mine when I, that, that the, it has to change up there as well, let's say in government and all these things and farm subsidies, there's all these very, very high sort of decisions that need to be made. But I think it actually comes also down to 
the individual American is is educating themselves about what they're eating and what they're putting in their body for fuel because it's actually just fuel. And you put shitty gas in the tank, you don't work as well. But what I when I came back from Italy once, I was in I was in uh, in uh, in Sicily doing an event there at a couscous competition. Oddly enough, uh, but you know you drive around in Italy or in anywhere in Europe, and everybody's got a little plot of land behind their house. What are they doing? They're growing lettuce. They're growing their tomatoes. They've got a lemon tree. They got a fig tree if it's warm enough to have one. But the idea that you drive around, and I came back to New York, and I went to my son's baseball tournament in Long Island, and I was determined after this trip to Italy to go find some food that was healthy out in, uh, you know, driving around the Middle Island, they call it. I couldn't find anything except for, you know, places that were just serving and selling cheap bad food. And then I started noticing, you know, everybody has these huge, beautiful lawns out here. And they, they, I was like, nobody's growing a tomato. Nobody's growing lettuce. I mean, if you think about, you know, food waste and, and, and the, the gas you use to drive to the store, I mean, you take a lettuce seed and plant it in the ground. And a couple of weeks later, it comes up and you've got lunch. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's basically free. You just have to water it. You just need the land. But instead, we've got these huge, ginormous lawns that are green and you know, somebody's picking the weeds out of the lawn. What good is that? I mean, why don't you grow some food? And I think that it, it was interesting because uh, when this started, I was I was actually already planning on building a, a a vegetable garden, and I was I had ordered the wood and so on and so forth. But then all of a sudden, I was like, I got to get seeds. And then I realized everybody in America was buying seeds. I didn't know. And then I read about it that two things happen when the stock market goes down. Seeds sell out quickly and uh, hatcheries that are selling the chicks for making to get a chicken coop, those sell out very quickly as well. And I just thought, wow, this is this is actually a good sign. Maybe people are going to get it. Like you can grow your own vegetables. You can, if you have enough room, put a little chicken coop. It doesn't take much to take care of a couple chickens and you get your free eggs because egg prices are going up. But that, that a little microcosm of that. And by the way, I mean, let's let this sort of transition to your show that you did for Bizarre Foods. You traveled around the world and yes, it was Bizarre Foods, but you saw this type of culture everywhere you traveled, which is you, you saw people you know, they take care of themselves and then food is the impetus for your, for your show, but it was also the impetus for all these people and how they survived. Yeah. Every, every culture I was, you know, the, the, the really, the staggering wake up call for me, you know, and, and my favorite shows to make, I mean, look, I'm not going to lie to you, uh, doing a Paris show and staying at a fancy hotel and eating your way across Paris for a week. Um, it, you know, one of the, the best days of my life was the middle of that. I think, I think in my first book, I wrote, you know, my best food day ever was the title of one of my chapters. And it was a day that I spent in Paris. Um, but the most impactful day uh, of my life, uh, one of the handful of them, uh, it was always doing the tribal shows, right, where you're living with with people who are protected tribes, people who are living indistinguishably um from the way in which their ancestors lived thousands of years ago. And it always took us years of petitioning governments to kind of get in and, and document how these folks lived. Uh, but I remember we were with the Himba in the Himba land, which is in uh, northern Namibia. And uh, they are pastoral people. They migrate their flocks and herds uh, around across several different uh, areas according to uh, the the seasons. Some places in Himbaland get more rain than others, so it's important to keep the flocks moving. Um, and you know the Himba 
men take many wives uh, so that along the way they have homes to stop in. They, they have many children uh, in each of their families so that, that, that that's your workforce and your standing army. Um, so the illusion is that men are in charge, but the women make all the decisions. It is a, it is not on the surface. It looks like a patriarchal society. It's not, it's a matriarchal society. One look at Himba women, and these are the women that put ochre. They're, first of all, they're Amazonian. I mean, they're, they're all six feet tall and, and just in, in, incredible driving forces in their communities. They cover themselves in what they call ochre, which is a mixture of a certain, certain type of mud and a beef tallow that creates a reddish hue on their skin. They decorate their hair and clothing with different jewels and things that on first look are just stunningly gorgeous. But it actually signals to other Himba women from a distance how many husbands you have, how many animals you own, how many children you have, so that everyone can sort of gauge who's who in this uh, in this matriarchal society masquerading as a patriarchal one. And I had my iPad with me, and uh, I was showing uh, one of the chiefs of one of the family groups that we were with. Uh, he wanted to see what my home looked like. And I showed him, and we live in the woods, and we had a very small lawn in front of the house. Uh, and, you know, we, we had our, our, uh, our container uh, garden and herbs and a fruit tree and all the rest of that. But it's a fairly small front of the house that was sunny where I could put the food. And the all of them gathered around to see what my house was. And then they all shook their head and kind of walked away. And I said to the translator, can you ask them what the disappointment was? And after a lot of, cause they didn't want to be rude, but you know, their body language showed it all. <laughs> and the, the answer that came back was that they thought that I was an important man, but clearly I wasn't. And I said, what, can you explain that further? They said, well, well, yes, the, all the people, that come with you seem to defer to you when you're talking, et cetera. They, they referred that that was the crew and who was shooting and stuff like that. He says, clearly you're the, you're the chief of your group. And I, I said, yes, I'm the, I'm the chief of my group. And they're like, and you, what we're looking at, that's that, you know, cause they live in small little huts made of grass and twigs. They can move around. Uh, and they said, you're what you live in is impressive. Um, but you're clearly a fool because you have all of that grazing land and you have no animals. And they said, how many animals do you have? And I said, I have two, I have a dog and a cat. And they thought that was hysterical. And they said, why don't you have goats or cows? Uh, and I just, I kind of, and they just shook them. They didn't even want to, anyone who had just a small bit of lawn and weren't using that little bit of greenery to raise animals to them was the 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 height of idiocy and i've never forgotten that moment to not take advantage of your resources and in america you know long story long our failing going back to world war 1 when victory gardens were feeding you know growing 65% of the produce in america was coming from victory gardens we have failed to honor our resources. I mean, just look at the right. environmental issues. Look at the other sustainability. I mean, sustainability is a word we throw around a lot. I mean, you know, there's financial, uh, economic sustainability, ecological sustainability, on and on and on. But the fact that we have squandered our resources, both human 
right? And physical is a mind. It, it, it tells the story of the last 75 years of American history is how we build these incredible resources and then squander them. And look at what the federal government is doing right now, our diminished position in the world, our inability to get things done, the gutting of agencies that were getting things done. Are we better off now than we were uh, three years ago? I don't think so, having nothing to do with COVID-19. Right. And a lot of it comes down. This is not a, you know, a, a, a left or right issue or a blue or red issue, although I will happily make it one. Uh, <laughs> but it's a forward, it's a forward issue, right? How does our society civically move forward? We have to protect our resources and we have to have a different kind of government that puts people ahead of profits. If we do that, history tells us, every economic study tells us, the profits will come. If you put profits before people, you build a house of cards that ultimately is not sustainable. Well, it's, tumb it's tumbling down right now. Yeah, no kidding. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. When you think about taking care of people, um, I was thinking about a, a trip that I took recently to Jordan, and I think you had been there as well. Did you go to the Zatari uh, refugee camp in Jordan? Uh, many, many times. I, I, I shot TV there. I volunteered there. I, I know that I know that you visited there. Uh, I've been there a couple times. You were there right after me. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 if I'm if I'm remembering from Instagram. 
uh, correctly. Yeah, it um, was it was amazing to see the human resilience. I mean, you saw these yeah. these women and these children and these kids, 90,000 of them inside of this refugee camp. They had all their markets and they were and we we were lucky enough. We got to go into their homes and actually cook with them mm -hmm. and and see what they were doing and and talk to them about their life and you know, these people had basically walked from Syria from a war torn country and they and they show up in this refugee camp and they're actually trying to there was there was a bunch of women that started a catering company for because people were gonna get married and they have to figure out. But it was so beautiful that that food was sort of the the the, the, the tying together of this culture and they kept their culture from where they came from and they were explaining to us certain recipes that were something that they had from back home. And and you went into these people's homes and there was a sink and a hole in the ground and and a, a thing with a gas to be able to cook something mm -hmm. but they still took the pride and they had little like lace curtains where the dishes were behind on, on like a piece of plywood it was just it was it was pretty amazing to see that and that, that you know your your show showing things like that was really Im impressive for those of us who were fortunate enough and i say fortunate uh to be able to visit places like that it, it stays with you forever. You realize how lucky we are. It humbles you in a way that, oh. like nothing I've ever, like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, at at Zatari, for for those that don't know, is a ninety to hundred. I think it's up to a hundred thousand now refugee camp on the Syrian Jordanian border, predominantly for Syrians leaving that war torn country. And um, at one point, we walked by these two wheelbarrows side by side filled with children's shoes, and you just looked at it and you just started sobbing because you knew why those shoes were there. If a child in one family outgrows shoes, it goes to the younger kid or the parent brings them to a friend whose kid needs shoes. Those shoes were shoes from children uh, that were no longer alive. And they were there to be distributed to newcomers. And I, I, I mean, to see that. Yeah. And then at the same time, on the flip side of it, understand that because everyone jokes about, quote unquote, the world's oldest profession. The world's oldest profession is selling food. The first businesses to spring up in Zatari are not for uh, pleasure seeking of a sexual nature. The first businesses to pop up in refugee camps are food businesses. We met a couple of guys, uh, and I don't know if you got there. I mean, it's a, it's a big camp. Yeah. Um, but on our last trip there, we went to the, the guys making flatbread and two young guys, uh, because when you come into Zatari, you get, uh, a very small amount of money, you get a place to sleep, and then you kind of entrepreneur your way into a, a better position. These guys took their money, bought a plastic, a couple five-gallon plastic buckets, cucumbers, and salt, because water is available to them. And they started making lacto-fermented cucumbers, and they set themselves up right across from one of the most popular uh, food resources in the community, which was one of the local bakeries. So with you know, before long, people would buy their bread and then buy a bag of pickles. And they just, you know, every day they'd start a new batch so that every day they had some to sell and they were selling out of their pickles. And I said to them, how's it going? And they said, well, we've only been open for a couple of weeks. We're going to start expanding into other vegetables. We're going to start fermenting cabbage. And we're going to say, and I was just like, this is just, in this is just incredible. The first thing that happens is they set up food. The single largest business in terms of, uh, 
uh, from an economic standpoint, in terms of the cash that it generates in the entire camp is that chicken restaurant. I don't know if you happen to walk by there, but there's a guy that's, they do this flat top chicken. You get a couple salads. It's only one item on the menu. Right. It's chicken. Um, but it's, an, and we, and we profiled uh, that family in one of our shows. It is the resilience of the human spirit always revolves around food, whether you're putting a cup of soup into someone's hand or whether you're cooking for your community or whether you're starting a business by fermenting some cucumbers. It's it's a mind-blowing fact of our lives and just one more indication about the vital role that food plays in our society, every level of society. I, I think it's 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 beautiful to to have, I think you're saying, we're, we're extremely lucky, you and I, we get to travel, we get to do things like this and we get to go see uh, uh, the the resilience of people, the the beauty of food, and where it takes you, and and with with all that, I think you know even even in our own community. I mean, for me as well is 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 how not only does it help people feed, but they also help each other in a sense. And you know, interestingly enough, I mean, obviously we all know about addiction and recovery and and I have I've had many chefs and cooks with who have gone through this and and we as a community come together and help those people out and I know you've had your struggles with that I have a, a really good old sous chef that that um that I knew that started and he he's he he now opened a restaurant in Washington state and he's part of this uh Ben's friends um organization when he started calling me and telling me and his mother calls me every once in a while and cries and says thank you for the help you did to get him through but so that that's sort of a story we've all heard or, you know, kids being, and I've seen this on Chopped as well, a kid who was in a gang who said, if I don't leave this town, I'm, I've already been stabbed three times and they go across the country and they become a dishwasher and they become a sous chef. And the next thing you know, they're on television on Chopped. Those things are amazing. But something that was interesting to me the other day is this this uh, young lady who's in um, – uh, who's writing a thesis or a paper for her culinary school. Her name was Kenzie. And she called me and and wanted to interview me about me and what and I was like, what do you do? And she, so I was I was sort of interviewing her at a certain point. I'm like, what? Do, how did you get to this cooking school? What, and she said that you know the Food Channel uh, and food has saved my life because I had an eating disorder and I was scared of food. And watching the Food Network and watching shows that people like me and people like you are on. She realized that she it made her more comfortable with food, and then she started cooking her way out of her out of her um, eating disorder, and has now is perfectly healthy and safe, and, and a perfectly healthy young woman who's in a school for cooking. I mean, I was like, I didn't even know this was something else that we were involved with, and this was the first time I'd ever heard of that. I mean, I'm very dyslexic, so I've I mention it a lot on Chopped. I, whenever I see a kid, I'm like. We're not stupid. We're just, we just think very differently, right? We, we come from a different angle. So I was like, dyslexics can get in this business and so on. But then all of a sudden, this eating, this, this girl, I was like, I was totally blown away. And, and I'm sure you have stories that are like that as well. And you've probably seen them in your travels, but really, really powerful. It, it, it is. And, and, uh, first of all, I, I applaud you that the same reason that you, uh, mention as often as you can what your own personal struggles have been is the same reason that I'm very public about my addiction and alcoholism. Um, because the the net-net effect that it has on being public about that helps to remove the stigma. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to have had your uh, penny uh, land shiny side up 
like you and I have, um, it allows you to influence and send out messages that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to create. Um, you know, when, when we had the opportunity to do What's Eating America, my series on MSNBC in season one, um, our production company insisted on um, doing a, a episode on addiction. And we knew, we knew from the get-go that we were going to uh, – suggest the network that we do it by telling that we use my, my personal story as a thread uh, for the narrative. Um, and, you know, that was the culmination of 28 years of being very public about my sobriety. Now, the first 15, 13, 14 years of my sobriety really was being public to my friends and family and my community in, in Minnesota. Once you get onto TV and then you get onto international TV and then you're, as your platform grows, it becomes a vital instrument that constantly, every day I'm reminded on, on social media with people I bump into that all of those, uh, actions, all of the things that you choose to do in your life, the choices you make, if they are done without self-seeking will have positive impact in the, in the world. When you're vulnerable and uh, you uh, put something out like, hey, I'm dyslexic, that that's not for personal gain. No one's going to sit there and go, oh, Mark Murphy is dyslexic. I'm going to go eat at his restaurant. Well, maybe a couple people are. <laughs> uh, but, but the positive ripple effect that it throws out there is just absolutely staggering. And it's taught me that that vulnerability is important everywhere in our lives. The more transparent we are, the more we connect with other people, and then we're able to influence other people in a positive way. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, and, and you know this, uh, I'm obsessed with this idea of service because service saved my life and it keeps me out of my own head. Uh, my, my head is a very, very dangerous place. I don't recommend going in there alone. <laughs> it is, it is something that I try to, to not let my thoughts be dominated by my, you know, pesky little problems and peccadilloes of my day-to-day -day life. I, I try to maintain an attitude of gratitude. And the only way that I've ever found that that is possible is by focusing on someone else instead of on me. And the only way that I have found in my life to actually put that into action, where it's not just an idea or a greeting card homily, is by doing service work. And it is what has propelled uh, my life in a positive direction in ways that I never, ever, ever could have imagined. So, yeah, and 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 is that what the impetus was for uh, what's eating America? Is this going out yeah. there and, and getting that and bringing it in? And also, yeah. and also, you, but you're doing this with your own production company, Intuitive Content. Yeah. Is that that? And you're working with Patrick, yep. obviously, who I know well. Uh, so yep. that that mindset. Um, of going forward, this was, it was basically, so you're, you're just, you're doing this for yourself, for your own self health as well as, well, as everything now, else. This is, so you're very selfish. A, <laughs> it, it, turns out, uh, it's fascinating that you, that you say that because I'll, I'll go back even further. Um, so I'm a chef in my own restaurant 21 years ago and I'm, I'm going to meetings and I'm doing my, recovery thing. And I realized my insides aren't matching my outsides. Everything that I'm pursuing in my recovering life and in my uh, development of a spiritual system for myself that works for me, that's personal to me, 
was in conflict with my job at the time. I was not going to get from point A to point B. My 10-year plan wasn't going to happen standing there in that restaurant cooking day after day after day. I needed to find a way to stay in the business that I loved, but at the same time, be able to tell stories, grow a platform, and do more service work. So the first thing that I had to do was come up, what's my message, right? And I wrote down on a piece of paper, uh, you know, change the world uh, by celebrating our commonalities. And then I added a week later, you know, stop celebrating our differences. Because it seemed to me that our world was always, we were always talking about our differences. You know, what religion you are, skin color, language, sexuality, all that stuff. Um, and this is 20-something years ago. But you you could see it. I mean, you could see it happening uh, in America. And uh, I wrote that down. And then I eventually, you know, it took, it was a seven-year process, sold a show, Bizarre Foods, that on one hand was about a fat white guy that goes around the world eating bugs. <laughs> and if someone wanted just to sit there and have that entertainment, God bless them. That's great. It's a very necessary part of life. But the deeper piece of that show was to spread patience, tolerance, and understanding for other people by celebrating our commonalities over food and diving into their culture, right? And it was a huge paradigm shift for me, and I was able to marry my insides and outsides. When Bizarre Food Travel Channel turned from a travel food station to a ghost and paranormal station, like a country radio station all of a sudden goes classical. It, it, very strange, and I know. <laughs> there was, they, they, yeah. So then I, uh, I don't do ghost and paranormal. And so I had the opportunity, the gift that they gave me was that Bizarre Foods was going to stop. A lot of people would look at that as, you know, a, a, a disaster. I was, uh, to me, everything is an opportunity. And I said, okay, now that I'm not doing that, what would I like to do? What's changed in the world? And I went back to the same thinking from 21 years ago. And I said, what do I want to do now? Well, the world has changed. And to your point earlier, chefs are now uh, beacons of information and they can be leaders for many different kinds of tribes and segments of our society, and they can be awareness raisers, and we have these unique platforms. And I felt that the stories that were there to tell were very deep and very profound, and that it was time to raise up what I saw as a element of food television that was missing, which was, why are we telling stories about civics and politics through the lens of food? Because you can tell any story through food, right? And we started pitching this idea around years and years ago. It, it wasn't getting any traction. And then finally, uh, MSNBC, uh, thank you very, very much, MSNBC, uh, bought this show. Um, and it was a, it turned out to be a monster hit. It turns out people were ready for it. I mean, the highest rated program they had in four years. Um, and it's just an amazing, amazing thing. People, who've been educated about food going back to the Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, Galloping Gourmet days over the course of all those years now want to hear what's really going on. And that includes shows like Chopped because notice 
You've brought Chopped Up three times. Not once have you ever talked about a dish, an ingredient, anything that was in a mystery basket or anything. What you brought up three times was someone's story. That's the most compelling part. I don't think a lot of people, it, by the way, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, play mystery box cooking with their friends because of chop. Right. So there's, yes, they're taking that entertainment into their own homes, actually putting it into practice. It's fun. We've done it in our house with the kids. It's great. But what they're really doing is they're queuing into those stories. They're rooting for those people, the humanity of it. And so we're all – food TV now is singing off the same song sheet. That's what's important, the stories, the humanity of what's really going on. So uh, you were talking about Patrick Weiland who uh, we – you know, runs intuitive content with me um, and who just, I adore him, a superb television professional, uh, as our whole team is, our intuitive content team is tops in the biz. Um, we have had the opportunity to make some real game-changing television. What's Eating America is is just a great example of that. Well, that's amazing. That's amazing. And and uh, well, for, I want to thank you for you know spending the time here with me. I know you're you're a busy man trying to do a lot of a lot of things. But I guess my my you know listening to this conversation and and hearing you speak of of where the world is now. So when do you think chefs are going to start running for office? I mean, they obviously should be leading. I mean, they, they we chefs should obviously be in charge because all we want to do is take care of everybody without any bias without any other th things in the way. So I, I think that we have to well, start looking for people to, uh, chefs to run for office. Oh, they will. They will. I guarantee, I guarantee it. Next election cycle. I mean, 2022, uh, you know, uh, is the next iteration of what I'm hoping is a regular election cycle. I mean, the one in November, you know, I'm, fingers crossed that happens. It, <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. Don't, you know, yeah, don't but, get me I going mean, the there. Good, the good thing is uh, also chefs like you, you and I, I mean, we're, we're talking about how, how everything's so screwed up right now, but we're also talking about how great, we're, we're half, the glass is half full all the time. Well, we have, we so the, I'm a three, look, you, you've you known me for a while. I'm a three quarters full person. Right. I just see a lot of opportunity, a lot of promise. I think chefs are the people who naturally lead. I think we have solutions to day-to-day -day problems. There are many chefs who people say, oh, he's a great cook. Well, you know something? They're even better communicators, policymakers, organizers, producers. Chefs have an incredible skill set in our society. I, I would, I, I mean, I would bet you everything in my pocket right now that you're going to see chefs running for office. And the reason is, you said this a, a, a while ago, chefs like cooks, like porters and dishwashers and hosts and, and server assistants and, you know, mixologists and bartenders, everything in between. Um, we're going to see a, an attrition of restaurants and you're going to see food people getting into other businesses. It's going to seem on at first it, and it will be a very sad thing. There'll be people going hungry and bills unpaid and, and all of that stuff. And it's going to be a human tragedy. But out of that, you will see people taking a different shift. And we will look back 50 years from now and say the, the, the employment attrition from the micro collapse, fingers crossed micro, right. of 20, 30% of the restaurant industry birthed all of these companies, 
run by people that would and created by entrepreneurs that would have otherwise stayed in their restaurant job. We have the smartest, best people in the world. We've talked about that 10 times today yep. in this conversation. Watching them pivot into what the next thing is, they may invent the next the, the, the next food drink that saves the hungry. They may create the next company that's Apple. You know, count on it. They're going to run for office. I think Jose wins the Nobel Peace Prize uh, the next time around, God willing. Uh, I mean, culinary people, food people from top to bottom are the shift shapers and makers of our society. I don't think there's a finer group. I think you're going to see them popping up everywhere. Well, this is this is awesome. This has been fantastic. I think this is exactly why, I mean, the reason I wanted to and why I've been doing my podcast, Food 360, and the reason I named it that is because, as you said earlier, everything touches food. Everybody, I mean, it's the one thing we all have to do every day. We all have to eat, breathe, and we have to sleep. That's fascinating. I thought it was because of your dyslexia, you thought it was 365 is in days of the year. You meant degrees of the <laughs> I'm just messing around. I tried to hey, can I out. give can I give one one shameless plug yep. for helping people? Please do. Uh, for any listeners, uh, go to andrewzimmern.com. We have a partners and uh, page. Just click on that. There's 20 different organizations that I do work with, uh, ranging from the, you know, Charlie's Theron Africa Outreach Program to the Independent Restaurant Coalition to services for the under served in New York, City Harvest, everything in between, all of my board work, all the organizations that I support. We have click on buttons there if you'd like to donate. Most importantly, we have a little blurb there about what those organizations do. So if you're so moved and don't have an extra dollar, please cut and paste that information and circulate it to your friends and tell them that you learned something important. Awareness raising is even more important than fundraising. And I, so I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. Website. I definitely want that to happen. You know, the interesting thing for me is uh, when my kids were younger, I, I love those little blurbs that, that, that charity have because you know when your kids are younger you have to teach them about charitable work and and I can <laughs> still remember the time when I gave a list of the charities that I support and obviously thank you for being part of City Harvest now I'm, I've been on the board for 10 years obviously share our strength no kid hungry which is important so I had my daughter read them and she was very young and she read the whole thing about no kid hungry and she was moved by the description of it so she decided to put all of her American girl dolls up for sale on eBay and give the oh money and give the money to the charity. And I got to tell you, like little things like that for teaching and, and, and it's, a, it's a teaching moment for our children and for obviously the people that are going to take care of this planet later. I think it's very important. And uh, Andrew, if I could really, if I could hug you again right now, I would love it. And, uh, you know, I will hopefully see you very soon. Keep up the great work. I and thank so. you so much for doing this with me today. No, thanks, my friend. Right. I really appreciate it. I miss you. Give my best to your family. And thank you so much for uh, doing all the wonderful things that you do to make your community stronger and better. I think it's uh, the most important thing that we can possibly do is help those that don't have. Paul Wellstone, the late, great Paul Wellstone, you know, my mentor, my civics mentor, uh, said it all the time. We all win when we all win. And I think that's the that's what's most important. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. 
Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.